Well, I'm going to Chicago, baby, but I can't take you. Well, I'm going to Chicago, baby, but I can't take you. Ain't nothing in Chicago, baby, a monkey woman can do. Well, here we are. The episode that will either cement our position as a leader of socioeconomic thought in the potosphere, or a huge letdown to our legions of supporters who have happily walked the path with us so far humming the refrain of Fuck Milton Friedman. Only time will tell. Here are the crib notes and disclaimers for today, unfuckers and subfuckers. This is the most ambitious show that we've undertaken thus far in our brief little history, and we try to keep it super tight. This is serious business that deserves the most serious of unfuckings. Why so serious? So we're going to forego devices like our mid-show palate cleanser and dial back the number of ludicrous clips to remain focused on the task at hand. We're going to have to go right to ludicrous speed. (gasps) Ludicrous speed. With a subject this serious and daunting, it's imperative we bring our A-game and leave our childish ways behind us. I've reviewed this with my team, and they're behind me 100%. He's an idiot. Today we're going to cover a little more than 100 years of economic theory through two world wars, the Great Depression, stagflation in the 70s, post-war booms, market busts, and the rise and fall of looming intellectuals. Our story has it all. War, peace, love, sex, money, ego, fame, you name it. That said, it's almost embarrassing how many great economists we left on the cutting room floor. Too many, in fact, to even run through in a list. Suffice to say, we've crafted a narrative around the main characters in our little story here today, lest we overwrite the ever-loving shit out of this episode and lose the main point entirely. In assembling the notes for the show over the past few months, I decided it was best to tell the story in chronological order. So it's actually going to take us a bit for us to even get to Uncle Fucknut. This is mostly because in order to understand what was done in the Friedman years when the Chicago school ruled the discipline, we have to understand what was undone. In the spirit of collaboration, and to make sure you don't get sick of hearing me blather, we're also going to get by with a little help from our friends. We reached out to the shows that have been generous enough to support us and get UNFTR off the ground. So those of you who have come to us by way of Best of the Left, David Pakman, Newsbeat, or The Young Turks, you'll recognize some familiar voices along the way. Make sure you visit our new website at unftr.com to check out our new partnership selling indigenously roasted coffee to help support the show and let us know what you think. It's my great hope that we contextualize the Chicago School of Economics and its high priest, Milton Friedman, by alternately explaining our view of the world and narrowing in on crucial moments that change the course of history. The idea is indeed ambitious, but so were the men, mostly men, and the institution behind these ideas. They might not be household names, but their work has impacted every citizen of the world, and that's no exaggeration. The latter part of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st belong to them in both theory and practice, and our existence is the very real manifestation of their policies. Now, unfuckers have been prepped and warned, and you're definitely ready. You've honored our work by supporting us financially. You've encouraged us to push the envelope and provided thoughtful suggestions for how best to move forward. In my entire career, I've never felt the wind so strongly at my back as I have with the force of the unfuckers. So trust me when I express my deepest gratitude and the hope that this episode, more than any thus far, matches and hopefully exceeds your expectations. As I mentioned in the teaser last week, I'll give credit where credit is due. 
At no point will I call into question the intellect or even the integrity of Milton Friedman or the institution he's synonymous with. To the contrary, I firmly believe that Milton Friedman was indeed a man of great integrity. His downfall, as I'll argue, was his undying commitment to orthodoxy. His belief that economics is an exact science and that markets are inherently just and therefore capable of taming the worst instincts of human nature. That and his ego, the intellectual surrogate for avarice, the true villain of our story. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs Started a podcast Another basic white guy who Started a podcast But it's fun because he curses Thomas Midgley Jr. was by any standard a brilliant engineer and chemist. This son of an inventor held a few positions before being recruited to work at what would become the research arm of General Motors in 1919. Midgley is credited with the discovery that adding lead to gasoline eliminates chronic engine knocks, which earned him great recognition, as well as lead poisoning. Still, Midgley was convinced lead could be used safely in gasoline, and he continued a successful career as an executive of companies that helped popularize its use, despite the widespread understanding it was harmful. Later in his career, he would discover that Freon could be used as an effective, non-odorous refrigerant in air conditioning and refrigeration. Midgley would be honored by his industry peers throughout his illustrious career, which slowed down considerably when he contracted polio in 1940. Ever the inventor, Midgley devised a pulley system to hoist himself in and out of bed so he could continue to work. Thomas Midgley is remembered today as quite possibly the single most environmentally destructive person to ever walk the earth. Sadly for us, Midgley wouldn't live long enough to hear himself referred to as such. He strangled himself to death with his homemade pulley system in 1944. That was the voice of Rashed Mian from the Newsbeat podcast. Confused as to why we would start with a story about leaded gasoline? Don't be. We've drawn our conclusion up front through our analogy to Midgley and we'll spend the balance proving our theorem. Midgley was a scientist's scientist. He was an excellent craftsman, the top of his trade in chemical engineering. In the beginning of his career, he toiled in obscurity and fought the tide until backed by an institution that became infatuated with what his discoveries could accomplish in the short term, regardless of the long term implications. And those implications grew beyond the man and the organization itself. Midgley's chemical engineering might have been inevitable. Had he not discovered the benefits of lead additive to reduce engine knocking or Freon as an effective non-odorous refrigerant, somebody else probably would have. But he was as much a master salesman as he was an engineer. So firm was he in his belief that lead was non-toxic in small quantities that he inhaled the vapors of his own invention in a public forum to prove a point. That he was committed to bed rest for several weeks as a result of lead poisoning hardly mattered to him. What remains beyond his rather ignominious demise by his own hand is catastrophe. Likewise, Milton Friedman was a pure scientist. In fact, one of the ideas he held dear was that economics was indeed a science and not an art. 
It was a science based on immutable laws that were to be respected, and if applied as prescribed by capable theorists and not the political class, it would work perfectly under natural governing laws and ultimately benefit the human race. What we'll argue is that, like Midgley, Friedman was a skilled economist who adhered to strongly held convictions throughout his life. Like Midgley, he was a master salesman who pushed through professional ridicule to emerge at the top of his field and would unleash catastrophe on the world. Unlike Midgley, he would live long enough to see it with his own eyes, and yet his ego wouldn't allow him to accept any blame. Perhaps the first main character we should properly introduce is the field of economics itself. We'll paint a broad picture of the discipline quickly in order to place other key figures in relation to the field. You see, economics wasn't much of an intellectual or academic field, especially in North America, prior to the 20th century. That doesn't mean economic theory didn't exist and wasn't important, it just wasn't a field unto itself. Even the greats, such as Smith and Marx, were considered social theorists and philosophers first and foremost. They were concerned with society and economic systems, and they created the foundations of thought that would ultimately forge economics as an independent field of study, but it was considered philosophy more than science. For example, the London School of Economics, a member of the federally chartered University of London, was founded in 1895. Harvard University followed suit in 1897 by establishing an economics department as MIT and Cambridge University did in 1903. The University of Chicago, as we'll cover later in the episode, was one of the first schools to pursue economics as a field of study from inception, though it too was established at the turn of the 20th century. Frank Knight, an important figure in the Chicago School story, divided economics into five parts. How society decides which goods and services will be produced, how production of said goods will be organized, the distribution of goods and services, a system that brings production and consumption in line, and finally, how the facilitation of the above maintains or improves society. This is, this is, this is, what? This is boring. Look, I didn't say this was fucking scintillating stuff, okay? It's economics. What do you want from me? I mean, in fairness, you did say this had sex in it. It does. I, I mean, a little. But that's not the point. Jesus. The point is, economics wasn't much of a profession. And it was considered even by leading academics to be the, quote, dismal science. The giants of classical theory, such as Adam Smith and David Ricardo, were pre-industrial philosophers who were thinking out loud about the best ways to structure a society. Marx and Engels had the benefit of witnessing the beginning of the industrial era, and thought to therefore infuse insight about the plight of the classes that emerged as a result. But even their frameworks were largely philosophical and less mathematical. The aforementioned philosophers are considered the founders of economic theory, to the extent that they were writing in the post-feudal landscape of burgeoning nation-states and the beginning of the end of the monarchical systems. Each would possess fundamental flaws given the periods they existed, but on the whole, they helped to create a universal language around the concept of capital, labor, and the distribution of resources and wealth. What emerged in the beginning of the 20th century is now referred to as neoclassicism, which focuses on the mechanics of economies with supply and demand as the driving forces behind production and consumption. Neoclassical economics would evolve over the past century to include the concepts of John Maynard Keynes, as well as the competitive theories that emerged after the Keynesian period. Elements of the traditional Keynesian economics would be infused with ideas regarding consumer behavior and expectations, 
and developing theories on pricing, trade, interest rates, inflation, and employment. At various points, certain elements would be disproven, and then refined, and then readopted. But on the whole, the past 120 years has produced a system of scientific beliefs on how the world operates according to economic theory. Ultimately, economics seems to have split into two distinct camps. Those who side with John Maynard Keynes and the preeminence of fiscal policy and government support, and others who side with Milton Friedman, the godfather of monetarism and champion of free markets above all things. One thing about the discipline that remains true, and is something that we must carry with us throughout this episode, is that every theorist, regardless of which camp they reside, believes in the final concept of Knight's tenets of economic theory, that their work exists to help determine a system that ultimately provides the maximum benefit to society. So while we're hanging at the turn of the 20th century, it's a good time to introduce two central characters in our story. Not people, but organizations. The first is obvious, and that's the Chicago School. We should talk about its founding and core principles because it's important to give this school its proper due. Today, the University of Chicago is one of the finest and most prestigious schools in the world. Now, as a New Yorker, it's not something I ever thought about growing up as conversations of elite schools usually ended with the Ivies. But Chicago is no fucking joke, and it was intended to be such by its founder and its primary patron. In his book, The Chicago School, which Milton Friedman himself reviewed as thorough and extraordinarily well-informed, Johann von Overvelt describes the characteristics of the Chicago tradition as, quote, a strong work ethic, an unshakable belief in economics as a true science, academic excellence as the sole criterion for advancement, an intense debating culture focused on sharpening the critical mind, and the University of Chicago's two-dimensional isolation, end quote. By the way, I read the shit out of this fucking book so that you don't have to. Overfelt is describing the economic school here, but it's reflective of the whole school ethos. Its first president, a man named William Rainey Harper, was responsible for wooing the great financier and businessman John D. Rockefeller to establish an institution in the Midwest that would rival the elite institutions back east. Prior to its founding as the school we know today, the university was actually a religious institution that ultimately failed from under-endowment. Harper saw the opening to create a research-based institution and vigorously pursued Rockefeller, who would wind up giving a whopping $35 million between 1888 and 1920. If not for Harper's genuine salesmanship and enthusiasm, there would be no Chicago school. Now, we mentioned the last tenet of the Chicago tradition characteristics was its two-part isolation. The campus is isolated, and this fact alone over the years created an insular community feel among the faculty. Secondly, it was far from Washington, D.C., which theoretically shielded it from the policy groupthink of the political class. Debate among the faculty was encouraged and expected from the outset, and the familial nature of the living quarters made those who survived the rigor of discourse almost fanatical in their loyalty to the school. They referred to their debates as bullfights and encouraged dissent among the ranks, and for the first 50 years, there was no particular dogma to the economics department. In fact, to the extent that there was consensus, it typically looked a great deal like what was espoused by Keynes. Now, before we talk about the transition from neoclassical theory to what it's known for today, the important takeaway about the institution is how its main characteristics contributed to the rise of monetarism and ultimately to the fanaticism for all things Milton Friedman. Chicago school professors viewed themselves as outsiders, 
They thumbed their noses at the elite schools in London, New York, and Boston. They were argumentative, and almost religiously so, and they believed that economics was a science. This was where the die was cast for Uncle Chicken Fart. This is where he was cultivated and nurtured. The only approval that he would ever require was from this place. In stark contrast to the arguments, the rigor, the science of this formative institution was the organization that nurtured and best explains John Maynard Keynes. Here to explain this important society in Keynes' life is our good friend Amanda from Best of the Left. In the early 1900s, well before Keynes was a proper economist, he joined a secret society among Cambridge undergraduates known simply as the Apostles. The Apostles were pure intellectuals, and they carried with them a healthy disdain for the old-world aristocracy and the debased political class. As Keynes grew in stature as one of the keenest minds in the group, he grew further apart from their distrust of politics and would eventually part ways with a handful of other luminary figures of the time, such as Leonard Wolfe, E.M. Forrester, Adrian Steffen, and his sister, Virginia, who would later marry Leonard. Yes, that Virginia Wolfe. The new sect adopted the name of the quaint neighborhood they moved to, called Bloomsbury. The Bloomsbury group, as they would henceforth refer to themselves, were lovers of discourse, of the arts and sciences, and in large part due to the influence of Keynes' liberal politics. The group experimented with sex, gasp, and held dinner parties and discussions that went well into the night. Keynes was known as a prolific lover, with a particularly keen eye for young men, and would frequently steal the love interests of his fellow group members. Throughout their lives, members of the Bloomsbury group would fall in and out of favor with one another and often argue about war, government, and lovers. But they were forever linked by their time at Bloomsbury, which they regarded as the greatest period of their lives. For his part, Keynes would seek the approval of this group of confidants more than he sought the approval of presidents, prime ministers, and generals for the rest of his life. To understand his motivation is to appreciate the deep and abiding love and respect between the members of this illustrious group. Milton Friedman and John Maynard Keynes never met in person. The only recorded interaction between the two was when, in 1935, Keynes refused to publish one of Friedman's papers in a British journal that he ran. Now, it's tempting to think that this was the moment of Keynes's undoing, like that scene in Casino. Remember when Robert De Niro's character refuses a favor to the commissioner played by L.Q. Jones, which unwittingly touches off the beginning of the end of his career in Las Vegas? I don't think that's it at all, but it is fun to speculate. To understand Milton Friedman is to know John Maynard Keynes intimately and understand just how large he loomed over politics and economics for nearly half a century. Though he came from some means, he wasn't part of the British aristocracy. He was always considered a towering intellectual, and he worked hard to curry favor with classmates, colleagues, and artists, and later politicians and world leaders. He was a people pleaser with a voracious appetite for sex, even tabulating his conquests throughout the Bloomsbury years. And while his sexual preference throughout his youth was almost entirely for men, he would mend his promiscuous ways after falling in love with a young woman named Lydia Lopakova, a dancer and performer who became Keynes's obsession for the entirety of his adult life. Keynes's romance with Lydia came as a shock to the Bloomsbury set, all too familiar with his proclivity for young men and often the lovers of his dearest friends. He was a scoundrel, but a loving one, and no one could stay angry with him for very long but something about Lydia fascinated the man, and he would devote himself to her as much as he did to his work. On the business side of things, Keynes would make a living as a young man primarily because of his capacity of intellect. 
He was an imposing figure who stood at six feet and seven inches and commanded a room with his presence. Though as soon as he opened his mouth, he had the words to back it up. It is a wonderful thing for our businessmen and our manufacturers and our unemployed to taste hope again. But they must not allow anyone to put them back in the gold cage where they have been pining their hearts out all these years. As you heard in this clip, he was entirely optimistic about the future of society, so long as it could wrestle with the fundamental issues of the post-industrial landscape. His early works were regarded as thoughtful and meaningful, but it wasn't until he was recruited by the British government during World War I that he began to ascend in his career. The Brits pressed Keynes into service to determine how best to finance their war efforts, which threatened to bankrupt the island nation. It was Keynes who led the charge to convince the Americans to intercede with funds long before it was conceivable that the young nation would commit its military to the dispute. In 1916, Keynes led a delegation of diplomats from England and France to the United States to try and convince the New World to financially support the war abroad. Financier J.P. Morgan was already on the hook for loans to the British, under pretty favorable terms for him. But the delegation was really coming hat in hand. They needed more. A lot more. Keynes and company were seeking $1.5 billion, a staggering sum. They left without a commitment or an inclination as to how the Americans would respond. But as Keynes biographer Zachary Carter notes, quote, the Treasury had only weeks before its gold reserves would be completely exhausted. London's prowess as a financial center was on the brink of annihilation. Without access to American money, the British war machine would collapse, end quote. At the same moment, President Woodrow Wilson, who was in a tight spot having won the election by campaigning on isolationism, helped convince a wary Congress to enter the war. This allowed the financial coffers from Wall Street to open up and for British debt to be financed approximately one week before Keynes calculated the British Treasury would be empty. Keynes's reputation as a pragmatist and a diplomat who inspired confidence among the business and political class was firmly crafted during this period. Most of his prognostications about financing the war efforts and subsequent impact on the British economy was spot on. He was trusted and respected, though still somewhat of a sideline player. But his clout was enough to secure a spot in the landmark negotiations that ended the war in 1919. Diplomats from around the world gathered at this time in 1919 to determine what the fuck had just happened and how exactly to exact revenge upon the Germans for completely screwing up the balance of the world. Lloyd George of Britain, Clemenceau of France, and Wilson from the New World took center stage. But it was Wilson who carried the initial stages of the negotiations and was received as a hero. Even Keynes was incredibly impressed by Wilson and almost exuberant that he would be rubbing elbows with him, much to the chagrin and mockery of the Bloomsbury set. It didn't take long, however, for Keynes and nearly the entire delegation to lose whatever respect they had for Wilson as negotiations were badly blundered, and Clemenceau especially was able to force an incredibly punitive agenda upon Germany, which Keynes viewed as a huge mistake that would most certainly result in catastrophic failure for Germany and perhaps even cause another war. Yes, this is how prescient this lanky-ass motherfucker was. Now, stop me if this next part sounds eerily familiar. While the world leaders cut a formidable presence in Paris, there was another uninvited guest who had an even bigger effect on the proceedings. The truth is, I have no talent at all. But this rat 
He's the one behind these recipes. He's the cook. The real cook. No, the pandemic. Keynes, among countless others, would get violently ill during this period. And it's now widely understood that Wilson was also suffering from the virus and, according to many historians, might have been extremely delusional at several points during the negotiations. Can you imagine that? Having a fucking delusional president with a virus trying to run the world? Weird. Back to our story. Paris in 1919 is one of my favorite periods of history. For Keynes, he would leave the negotiations frail, disappointed, and disillusioned. As he recovered and reconnected with his old Bloomsbury pals, he began to work on a paper that would put him on the map and invited acclaim, rebuke, criticism, and admiration the world over. The economic consequences of the peace pulled no punches. Though Keynes could be rambling and even biting at times, his take on the management of the peace process was regarded as a breakthrough work. In it, he critiqued everything from Burke to Lenin and excoriated the diplomatic process and failings of world leaders by name, which didn't exactly garner him much support in the halls of power. But the economic consequences was bigger than that. It was at times radical, attacking capitalism and inequality. At others, it was extremely practical, especially when addressing the onerous terms of German reparations and what it pretended for financial markets globally. He emerged as someone bigger than the sum of the parts that created the doomed Treaty of Versailles and an uncompromising intellectual that challenged conventional, political, and economic thought. And the distribution of this work also made him a very rich man. Coming out of the war and into the Roaring Twenties, Keynes had somehow managed to retain the admiration of Bloomsbury, that of his peers, accumulate enough wealth to never again bend to power, and a reputation for speaking truth to such power. The Keynes era had officially begun. Uh, hello? <laughs> Isn't this where we do our thing? Sit down, Mr. Gates. Uh, who are you? The man said sit down. <laughs> this is weird. Mr. Gates, my name is Max. I'm the host of this program, and this is my engineer, Manny. We're breaking the fourth wall today because, well, I'm not sure how else to say this. There's no skit in this episode. Uh, whoa, wait, uh, where's Marjorie? Matt, no one's here. It's not happening today, dummy. Uh, why? Because this is a serious fucking episode, okay? We're examining the history of Milton Friedman and his impact on the study of economics. We don't have time for your bullshit. Uh... You mean how Friedman's study of monetarism upended the prevailing wisdom of fiscal policies and government intervention into markets? Oh, shit. What? No, it... Well, yeah, something like that. <laughs> cool. Make sure you contextualize the rise of monetary policy in the framework of Depression-era macroeconomics that stemmed from Keynes' general theory and how it began to fall apart during the stagflation crisis of the 1970s. <laughs> uh, 70s. <laughs> uh, disco Bush. <laughs> That's awesome. The study of economics would intensify in the years after World War I. Keynes would continue to earn a good deal of money and be sought after for his opinion in both Britain and the United States, especially as his predictions began to ring true. The 20s were unhinged, and America fully took the reins as the financial center of the world, much to the annoyance of the banking class in London. 
but they were unremarkable in terms of new burgeoning theories until, of course, they came to an unceremonious end, beginning with the stock market collapse. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the... Anyone? Anyone? The Depression spared no one. Germany was already reeling from an inability to manage reparation payments, and the other European countries were still trying to regain their footing and were ill-prepared for the financial calamity that ensued. What surprised everyone was the inability of the United States to weather the market collapse as it spiraled out of control and into the economic abyss. The Depression would mark the true ascendance of John Maynard Keynes, as even the Brits would put aside their petty differences stemming from his critique of the peace process. Keynes was once again pressed into service, and, once again, his focus was on the United States. As the new center of the economic universe, any recovery globally would have to be led by the U.S., and so Keynes penned an open letter to the new president, Franklin Roosevelt, pleading for massive fiscal intervention into the U.S. economy to, above all else, get Americans back to work. America was the key production engine the world needed to restart. This open letter was met with kind of a shrug across the pond, but elsewhere in the world, people took note. Much to his dismay, the British government was not inclined to gamble on the theory that governments should run extraordinary deficits with public works programs and stimulus that would fill the pockets of citizens and consumers. This wasn't the only intervention that Keynes prescribed, but it was the most controversial as deficits were seen as death to the political and economic futures of governments and the men who ran them. But the letter was also important because it contained the basic framework of a larger theory that would ultimately become the most important and oft-quoted economic book of all time. Here to tell us about this important book is Anna Kasparian from The Young Turks. Much of the language associated with macroeconomic theory is derived from the seminal work of John Maynard Keynes, titled The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money. Published in 1936, Keynes's general theory upended conventional wisdom in economics and quite literally changed the entire field of study forever. It's no exaggeration to say that it was, and probably still remains, the most influential economic theory book since The Wealth of Nations. In Keynes's most recent biography, author Zachary Carter describes the general theory as, quote, a dangerous book because it reframed the central problem at the heart of modern economics as the alleviation of inequality, pivoting away from the demands of production and the incentives facing the rich and powerful that had occupied economists for centuries." End quote. The general theory is a difficult book to read, and many scholars believe this is to be purposeful. It contained elaborate equations and charts. It was written in grand, sweeping prose that could be both inaccessible and hauntingly beautiful. It was conceived with the scars of the First Great War still fresh in everyone's mind and the pain of the Great Depression evident all around. It called upon government to intervene in ways that were never considered possible. It gave us new tools and principles that are still used today, and it created a human approach to a cold and opaque field that honored markets above people. Not everyone was enthralled with the general theory, however. President Roosevelt, perhaps still smarting from Keynes's audacity to publish an open letter to him, took the prescriptions lightly. Ultimately, he would give Keynes an audience and warm to many of his ideas, 
but he stopped short of fully implementing them because of the prevailing sentiment that a government could not and should never run a budget deficit. There was another detractor who plays prominently into our story and serves as a human bridge to Milton Friedman. Friedrich Hayek is regarded today in libertarian circles as an equally important figure to Friedman. Born in Vienna, Austria in 1899, Hayek believes strongly in the concept of the invisible hand from Adam Smith and would move it to the front of his philosophy in order of magnitude. Hayek immediately savaged the general theory, though at the time, no one gave a shit for the time being. Hayek is an interesting figure in that he represents the first real counterpoint to Keynes, even as he toiled in relative obscurity to the great man. Gradually throughout the course of the Depression, governments began to awaken to the concepts in the general theory, though not fast enough to jumpstart a meaningful recovery until the onset of the Second Great War. Keynes believed that unemployment was the key ingredient behind fascism. He argued over and over that employment and production above all else would spur productivity during a decline and rebalance the economic equation and therefore the social equation. His concept of the paradox of thrift essentially said that during periods of a recession or decline, a government could stimulate growth by driving toward full employment no matter how it was achieved. Through a mix of monetary policy to encourage borrowing and investment and fiscal infrastructure programs and government incentives, the only thing that mattered was that consumers felt secure and could pay their bills. Ultimately, he would be proven correct on this account where the depression was concerned. Only it wasn't the construction of bridges and roads that ultimately solved the employment piece. It was bullets and tanks. Of course, Keynes knew all too well that this would serve as a viable economic substitute for government infrastructure spending. But to understand him as a man is to also know that this was a heartbreaking revelation he spent a lifetime trying not to revisit. In 1944, our story takes a sharp turn. It was the twilight of World War II, and nations were just beginning to look forward and attempt to perceive what the next chapter of the world would look like. In this year, Friedrich Hayek would publish the seminal work of his career, titled The Road to Serfdom, dedicated to, quote, the socialists of all parties. In it, he claimed that, again, quote, the rise of fascism and Nazism was not a reaction against the socialist trends of the preceding period, but a necessary outcome of these tendencies, end quote. Keynes contended that a form of socialism was the natural outcropping of capitalism in a positive way. Here, Hayek was arguing the opposite. His economic theories were strictly monetary, as he believed that government had no place in the affairs of individuals, nor the economy. Unlike Friedman, Hayek did have the opportunity to know Keynes, and the two actually maintained a fairly cordial professional relationship. Keynes didn't dismiss Hayek's assertions out of hand. In fact, he quite agreed with his views of monetary policy but in broad strokes, he simply disagreed with his conclusions. Quick note of historical irony, our protagonist, Milton, was recruited by the Treasury during World War II to work on issues of taxation. And during his tenure, he was a crucial part of the team that created the withholding tax, a revolutionary method of collecting taxes in advance at the time, and something that we've all been stuck with ever since. While it was an effective way to ensure that our war efforts would be financed, Friedman would have a tough time living this down. In fact, the one person who never forgave him for coming up with this idea was his wife, Rose, the daughter of Aaron Director, one of the most prominent figures of the Chicago School of Economics. But I digress. The other seminal event of 1944 was the conference in Bretton Woods. Here, the world would once again descend upon a conference to determine the path forward out of conflict. 
Bretton Woods would conclude with somewhat of a victory for Keynes, who argued that a central bank could stabilize currencies and interest rates and intercede on behalf of debtor nations to facilitate the forgiveness of debt. Now, on this last point, he lost. But in most ways, he was pretty successful with the establishment of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. He also argued successfully that participating nations make their currencies convertible into dollars at a fixed exchange rate. In turn, the dollar could be converted to gold. This enabled the world to finally be free of the physical gold standard without throwing the balance of financial power into complete disarray. But the negotiations at Bretton Woods would break Keynes once and for all. The towering man made it through two world wars and the Great Depression, occupying the spotlight on center stage for most of this time, and it had finally taken a toll on him. His health declined rapidly, and though he would linger and be somewhat productive after a brief respite with the love of his life, he would never be the same. Keynes died in 1946, right before the birth of a new society that would ultimately come to define the next generation of economic thought. Here's our friend David Pakman to tell us about the origins of an important organization in our story. Friedrich Hayek founded the Mott Pelerin Society in 1947, along with Friedman, Aaron Director, Frank Knight, and George Stigler, to discuss the future of what was then called liberalism, but in strictly economic terms, very different from what we would consider the term to mean today. Liberalism, in their view, was an adherence to free market values above all else. It was a way for Hayek to promote the ideas found in his publication, The Road to Serfdom, which was met with moderate acclaim at first. Eventually, Hayek gained a cult following among libertarians and Reagan-era economists who viewed big government as an existential crisis that threatened capitalism. They called themselves neoliberals, and thus, a new philosophy was born. During his tenure, Hayek had trouble overcoming the long shadow of Keynes, and by 1962, he retreated to the University of Freiburg in Germany, which opened the door for new leadership at the society. Milton Friedman was the clear successor and heir apparent. The Mott Pelerin Society remains active even today, advocating for the rule of law, the rights of the individual, and the preeminence of free markets. Now, in this clip, you can hear Hayek in his own voice supporting his friend Milton, but still questioning his dedication to monetarism. Well, personally, I think even he is, in one respect, for instance, he's invested so much in a particular scheme of monetary policy that he refuses to consider what I regard as uh, the ultimate solution of the problem, the denationalization of money, privatization. That is so much beyond his scope of his aims that he rejects it outside. Now, before Friedman took over the society, the members were coalescing around counter-arguments to Keynes' general theory. Even supporters of Keynes, such as the great Jacob Viner, a close Chicago school associate of Knight, Friedman, and Stigler, agreed almost wholly with Keynes and his recommendations to handle the Depression. But he was the first to break with the norm and hero worship to suggest that Keynes was only correct to the extent that the Depression was an existential social and political crisis. For him, Keynes was the axe behind the glass to be broken only in case of emergency. This view was polite compared to how it would evolve among the Mont Pelerin Society members throughout the 50s and 60s. 
Friedman in particular could best anyone in tearing apart any argument that contained a hint of government intervention. And over time, his positions would solidify and take on an almost manic fanaticism, though delivered with his cool, wry, fuck you sort of sensibility. The thing with these economic libertarians is that they were theorists without a policy home. Academics who were shouting at the rain as they continued to live in the shadow of the great man. What they really required was a host body to put their ideas to the test. And in 1964, shortly after taking over the society, Milton found his man. And I know also that some men may walk away from it. That some men resist challenge, accepting the false security of governmental paternalism. This again will be a nation of men and women, of families proud of their roles, jealous of their responsibilities, unlimited in their aspirations, a nation where all who can will be self-reliant, with government performing only those needed and constitutionally sanctioned tasks which cannot otherwise be performed. Friedman surged out of academia in 64 for his association with the most uncompromising conservative political movement in America, the presidential campaign of Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater. While Friedman would always bristle at being called a conservative, the conservative movement of Goldwater was a convenient marriage of ideas for Friedman's neoliberals. I'm a liberal in the true sense of the word. The word is now used in a distorted way. The modern liberal is liberal only with other people's money. In pure policy terms, Friedman believed that the government should provide families with vouchers to buy their children slots at either public or private schools. The resulting competitive market for education would surely liberate black America more thoroughly and efficiently than any government mandate. Friedman actually had a lot to say about the plight of black people in the United States blaming government's attempts to help improve their standing in American society rather than, you know, centuries of institutional racism. Why do we have so high an unemployment rate among black teenagers? It's a disgrace and a scandal. Why do we have so high an unemployment rate? First of all, because we give them lousy schooling through governmental schools, which make them unqualified to hold decent jobs. And second of all, we require employers to discriminate against them by not hiring them unless they have, uh, unless their productivity is enough to justify a minimum wage. The minimum wage rate is the most anti-Negro law in the books. That clip is from much later in his career, but it echoed one of his principal beliefs and a point he would repeatedly hammer home. Black schools were worse than white schools. So black people were therefore less educated. And minimum wage put wages above what they were worth in the world. That's what he was saying, in case you need a translation. For reference, this was part of a lecture series he gave in 1977, when the minimum wage was $2.30. Sorry to put too fine a point on it, but he's arguing that black schools in America produce students that weren't worthy of earning $2.30 an hour, and that the free market should allow businesses to pay them what they were really worth. These were the ideas that were tremendously appealing to Goldwater, but the big hairy concept behind it all that galvanized him the most was the concept that the only legitimate role of government was to establish the institutions necessary to uphold free market capitalism, a military to defend the nation, a police force to protect businesses and citizens, and a central bank to ensure there's enough money supply to facilitate exchange. 
Anything out of the realm of these ideas would serve to slow the wheels of commerce and create chaos in the markets and therefore society. So while Goldwater wound up getting trounced and these ideas weren't ready for prime time, a new class of young politicians took note of Friedman. Change was in the air in the 60s, man. Music, attitudes, baby boomers coming of age. Liberalism and conservatism were moving further and further apart. Now, I don't want to undercut what was happening in the 60s because there was actually a growing battle between economists during the time that's quite fascinating, but I think it's overkill to get too far into the weeds. Bottom line is Kennedy brought in a slew of ivory tower Keynesians and Johnson followed suit by sequestering his economic advisors on his ranch to think big. They emerged with Medicare and Medicaid. So a lot was happening at the time, but you can imagine how tweaked the neoliberal crew over in Mont Pelerin were with the expansion of big government. I do, however, want to highlight one specific policy that was developed on the eve of the 1960s because it plays an important role in what we're about to cover as we head into the 70s. It's something called the Phillips Curve. Here to explain what it is and the importance of it is Chris from Newsbeat. The Phillips Curve was a theory developed by William Phillips, known as A.W. Phillips, a New Zealand economist who spent the majority of his career at the London School of Economics. Phillips studied the patterns of wages and inflation over long stretches of time, research that had been done in other quarters during this period. But in 1958, he was the first to commit it to the theory we now know as the Phillips Curve. Based on the observation that high unemployment usually created a stable or even declining level of wages, he went on to theorize that there was an inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. When unemployment was low, it pressured prices and helped create inflation. Conversely, when unemployment was high, inflation tended to cool. What makes the Phillips curve so vital to our discussion of Friedman and Keynes is that it was immediately accepted and understood to be inherently true. This lent credence to Keynes's belief that full employment was one of the primary ways to achieve stability in pricing and the economy as a whole. Then along came the 1970s. Suddenly, in the United States especially, inflation was on the rise, but so was unemployment. Worse, GDP declined for six consecutive quarters, confounding economists and politicians. This scenario was dubbed stagflation and caused a complete crisis in the field of economics. The Phillips curve had failed and policymakers were at a loss for how to mitigate the situation. Nearly every policymaker, that is, except Milton Friedman, who was ready for his close-up. Stagflation in the 70s did for Friedman's career what the Depression did for Keynes. During the Depression, all economic conventions related to the markets and scarcity went out the window. After all, if crops were abundant but left to die, i.e. not scarce, then why was there hunger? Wage demand didn't match hiring requirements. Cheap labor was everywhere. We'd move past self-correction and the markets will cure all idea during the Depression. Well, similar to that, stagflation caused a crisis among economists, especially those who consider themselves devout Keynesians. A more fascinating debate of this period involves how Keynes would have viewed it if he were still alive. Neoliberals with a kind interpretation of Keynes suggest that he would have grown to reject the strict doctrine ascribed to him by academics and that he would have eventually adopted the monetarism and price theory stances of the neoliberals. 
His more aggressive detractors simply use this period to dismiss Keynes altogether as a relic, as though this brief period, which was about from 1973 to 75, by the way, could undermine the whole of economic thinking for the better part of the 20th century. The oil shock, Middle East crisis, an overheated economy, inflation, post-Vietnam war debts, Nixon's financial shock of obliterating the Bretton Woods Agreement, the application of punitive tariffs, so much contributed to this period of stagflation. But as usual, whoever possesses the simpler message usually controls the narrative in a crisis. And so there it was, the final tipping point. The man with the plan and the simple cure-all answer was prepared to solve the world's problems with two simple words, free markets. Friedman applied free markets to everything. Racism, colonialism, inequality, pollution, everything could be cured by the mighty free market. If only the government would get out of the way and just fucking set the markets free. There's plenty to tell about what constitutes a free market. And before we get there and head into the Reagan era, which saw a full embrace of Friedman, the little fucker took to the road to sell his ideas to the world. Now pay attention on fuckers, because this is where you're going to really start to hate this guy. In the 1970s, Friedman traveled to Cape Town, where he gave a speech arguing against universal suffrage for black South Africans. The political market of voting, he insisted, would unfairly weight South African politicians towards special interests. He would express utter disdain for anyone who even suggested that America and Europe took advantage of poor societies through colonialism. That, he insisted, was the free market at work. It's not true that the wealth or the benefits of the West derive from exploiting the colonies. The facts are against you. The reason why you say that is because it is so hard for people to get out of the notion that life is a zero-sum game. They think if one man benefits, another must lose. But in a free market, both people can benefit. Now, perhaps most famously, Friedman led a group of economists from the Chicago School to consult with Augusto Pinochet in Chile shortly after the U.S. helped assassinate the socialist leader, Salvatore Allende, and clear the way for the dictator to take over. This story would haunt Friedman for years, but his take on it was entirely different, and you're not going to like this, it was probably a little more accurate. See, Friedman did indeed advise Pinochet, and there was coordination between our government and that of Pinochet to try and establish trade with Chile and stabilize their currency, which was raging out of control with inflation and volatility. But some made it seem like Friedman opened an office in Pinochet's palace and drafted the Chilean constitution together over cigars. In reality, he simply espoused the same theory he'd been pushing since his earliest days in Chicago. Monetarism created free markets. Now, Friedman did, however, consider his advice to Pinochet a success in that inflation was ultimately brought under control and the economy recovered. Now, did Pinochet murder dissidents and allow American business interests to take root and subjugate the working class in Chile? Yeah, you bet. But such trivial measures were beside the fact. On Planet Friedman, only the markets and free trade mattered because he believed they would help overcome inequality and injustice. Friedman didn't have to dither long in foreign affairs. In the 70s, he was just warming up. Pretty soon, as we covered in a prior episode, a happy-go-lucky shill for corporate America and former actor moved into D.C. and invited the neoliberal crew from the Chicago School to take a seat at the adults' table. Like the great president he inspired, instead of catering to the conventional wisdom, he redefined convention. 
His were the opening shots of the Reagan revolution. Reagan and his advisors were interested in only one economic policy, monetary policy as espoused by Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Economics. Monetarism had come to be viewed as the antidote to Keynesian economics, a reductive examination of the great man's work, but easy to package, easy to understand, and easy to sell. Here to describe monetarism for us is a voice that most of you will find familiar, the inimitable Jay from Best of the Left. Political interpretations of Milton Friedman's impact on public policy largely depend upon one's personal beliefs. His advocacy of free markets and deregulation is easy to digest when viewed strictly through an ideological lens. His ability to speak plainly about economic theory allowed him to reach an audience of everyday consumers and citizens. His intellect, quick wit, and penchant for debate made him a formidable opponent in any venue. But these factors also reduced the importance of his research, which upended a half-century of economic theory and earned him the grudging respect of even his detractors. His central contribution to the discipline of economics is what is referred to as monetarism. Put simply, it's the belief that adjustments in money supply are a greater determinant of economic growth than any other policy, especially fiscal policies of government spending that had become synonymous with Keynesianism. Critically, monetarism states that employment, inflation, and production are all primarily impacted by growth and velocity of money supply, how much there is and how fast it moves through the economy, and interest rates that can either spur or stifle investment. What's important to understand is that monetarism was already a tool in Keynes' arsenal, but to be used alternately with fiscal policy depending upon current circumstances. Where Friedman veers from Keynes is in the belief that monetarism was the only tool that mattered, and that fiscal policy created more harm than good. This key differentiator relied on other factors to be present, or rather, eliminated. Most notably, regulations. Ugh, God fuck Milton Friedman. Oh, sorry, am I allowed to swear on the show? The Reagan team would go all in on monetarism and add another twist, though this too was blessed by His Majesty Milton. Reagan was looking for a way to sell tax cuts to the rich to a skeptical public that while rooting for a comeback led by the Gipper, wasn't entirely ready to give things away to the rich. But Reagan courted a supply-side economist named Arthur Laffer, who illustrated the relationship between tax rates and tax revenue in what became known as the Laffer Curve. Now, on his curve, he argued that if taxes are too high, it will then discourage production and activity. Therefore, in order to stimulate economic growth, it was imperative to cut taxes. You've all heard this, right? We've heard of the Laffer Curve. We've heard of the importance of cutting taxes to stimulate production. This was the beginning of the idea of trickle-down. Now, to understand where Laffer exists in the pantheon of great economists, all you have to do is visit the National Museum of American History. There, you'll find the fucking cocktail napkin that Arthur Laffer drew his theory on, complete with a dedication to one of the two men who pocketed the napkin, Donald Rumsfeld, who was hanging with Dick Cheney at the party. This is a true motherfucking story. And it says everything you need to know about the depth of knowledge or perhaps depravity of the modern Republican Party that they would save a fucking cocktail napkin from a party when Ford was president, whip it out six years later, show it to the president like, oh, almost forgot, here's your entire fucking tax theory, sir. 
Friedman was no Republican, and as he said, he was hardly a conservative. He was a true libertarian who believed in the divinity of the markets. He would mostly favor the Reagan years for its accomplishments in cutting taxes and deregulating industries, but he was actually critical of other things that weren't as obvious. For example, he was appalled by the war on drugs. Drugs were a choice, and chasing them was a waste of time and money. He criticized Reagan's foreign intervention and massive increase in government spending on the military. It was unnecessary in Friedman's view because it was on foreign entanglements that had nothing to do with promoting free trade and commerce. This is where it gets murky with Friedman. As soon as you want to punch this motherfucker square in the face, he says something like, we should legalize drugs and stop spending money to build up the military and fuck with Latin America and other countries. He was also standing on pretty solid ground when he criticized urban renewal and how the government ran public housing. Where you're justified in punching him in the fucking face is his rationale. See, he didn't give two fucks about killing people. He didn't think racism was a problem so long as the minimum wage was eliminated, because that, to him, was the root of the problem. He thought drugs should be legalized, but only because it was a waste of resources to chase drug dealers. If people got high, fuck them. Just don't spend my tax money trying to stop them. And in terms of public housing, he might have been right about the outcome, but he also disagreed with the intent. Housing isn't a right or something to strive for. That's how he thought. It's what makes him such an appealing figure to libertarians who think he's some sort of god. And the temple that housed his religion was in the second city. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. The Chicago School would produce a number of concepts that built on the idea that anything that restricted the freedom of the markets was inherently evil. They were the ones that pioneered the war on unions, referring to them as monopolies in that they fostered a concentration of power within a particular functional class. An Englishman named Ronald Coase traveled to the mecca of economic theory in Chicago to put forward a theory that stated, quote, when transaction costs are zero and rights are fully specified, parties to a dispute will bargain to an efficient outcome, regardless of the initial assignment of rights, end quote. So essentially, Coase was arguing that irrespective of rights or authority, absent regulations in a free market, the right and just outcome will always emerge. Now, Coase was met with almost universal derision for his theory at first. But in one evening, Uncle Fuckbreath soaked up the oxygen and in a matter of two hours converted every one of the 21 opponents to Coase to his way of thinking. Every single one. The translation of his idea, which has since become known as the Coase Theorem, was that neither the government's intervention nor the free market guarantee a just and proper outcome to a dispute. But between the two, in every case, the government's solution will be inferior. Therefore, regardless of the outcome, the free market will always know better than human interventions. Chicago school economists Gary Becker and Richard Posner would double down on the Enlightenment theories of Lemercier and Enlightenment theorists that we've covered before and create new concepts around the notion that government exists only in the area of national defense and domestic law enforcement. Future theorists such as John Lott and the Chicago Law School will build on Becker's theories in particular to conclude that the only way to reduce crime was to legalize concealed handguns and that, quote, women and blacks obtain the largest benefits from discretionary concealed handgun laws, end quote. Cutting taxes on the rich, destroying unions, legalizing concealed weapons, 
eliminating government from all but war and domestic policing, pillaging and colonizing foreign nations in the spirit of free trade, deregulating industries and allowing them to self-police regardless of their impact on the environment or the working poor, eliminating social programs like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and food stamps. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That is, indeed, the Chicago way. These ideas that unfuckers recognize as the most dangerous, cynical, and damaging influences of modern public policy from Nixon forward, they belong to the Chicago School of Economics and its high priest, Milton Friedman. That's how we got here, unfuckers. That's the whole fucking story. And before I offer our conclusion, I want to dip back into history for a moment to talk about what could have been. For a brief spell from 1938 to 1944, the most popular professor on campus was a man named Oscar Lang. Lang was a Polish economist and dedicated socialist who won the hearts of students and colleagues through his brilliance and congenial nature. He put Hayek in his place and prevented the likes of Friedman from gaining too much attention. Lang would ultimately move back to communist Poland and be professionally neutered by the regime, never again to hold the level of respect in academia. And in this vacuum emerged a fiery Friedman who attacked Lang's work with a vengeance and asserted himself as the alpha in Chi-Town. I bring this up prior to our conclusion to demonstrate how the slightest changes, happenstance in history, can alter the course of human affairs. I bring it up because the big what if here is what if Oscar Lang stayed? What if there's no natural opening for Friedman? Now, why even ask the question? Because anything that has been done can be undone if we understand how it happened. Anything can be reverse engineered and every little step in the journey, each brick in the wall matters, even a podcast. John Maynard Keynes believed that left to our own devices, we would be guided by our lesser instincts. He saw firsthand the ravages of war and the indiscriminate punishment of the Great Depression. He studied the frequent boom and bust cycles of the Industrial Revolution and understood that markets would be manipulated by those in power seeking to retain it, and that history would repeat itself if the greed of man wasn't somehow reined in. 1637, 1797, 1984, 1987. Jesus, didn't that fucker fuck me up good? 92, 97, 2000, and whatever we want to call this. It's all just the same thing over and over. We can't help ourselves. Friedman, on the other hand, would romanticize this period. In the period in which you had the greatest improvement in the lot of the ordinary man was a period of the 19th and early 20th century. Those of us in this room are the heirs of that. He called the industrial era in the 19th century the, quote, closest approach that the United States has had to true free enterprise capitalism. Anybody was free to put up an enterprise. Oh, my God. Like so many who followed in his footsteps, Friedman looked wistfully upon the past when America was supposedly great. Recall from our Reagan episode that Make America Great Again was Reagan's campaign slogan before it was revived by Professor Orange Von Fucknugget. The land was free to take. Or was it stolen? Anyone was free to put up an enterprise during this period, except that banks wouldn't lend money to black people, and women couldn't even vote. 
It was the true invention of the American spirit. Even if the new plants belched and spewed toxins in the air, children were forced to work in mines and on production lines, and the absence of regulations made everything from our food supply to our places of work more dangerous than a fucking virus. What kind of fucking monster would romanticize this period? One who believed that progress at any cost in a market where one was free to push the human condition to extremes is the definition of morality. Keynes saw firsthand the devastation of the so-called free markets when men were free to do as they pleased and succumb to depravity. He dedicated the whole of his being to the detriment of his health, to determining new ways of running the world to prevent such occurrences in the future. And Friedman did everything in his power, guided by ego and dogma, to undo this work and return to one of the worst periods in American history for human health and equality. But this is also a tale about the dangers of orthodoxy and groupthink. Friedman assembled a cult of intellectuals bound and determined to explain away everything they saw, touched, and felt by claiming an impossible cure. A free market. A free market of all things, as though externalities, to borrow a Chicago economist term, didn't exist or matter. As though greed, corruption, and pollution weren't even factors. Everything was boiled down to a simple equation, which made their arguments pure because they could never be settled. I liken his dedication to this faith to anyone who explains away reality and consequences through a prism of religious belief. Why do children die? God's plan. Why do bad things happen? God's plan. If your theory on life is impossible to prove, then all you have to stand on is faith. The market in Friedman's world is a deity omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And should anything run afoul of it, like an Orthodox clergy member, he can simply suggest that a system or a person or institution somehow failed to adhere to the impossible standard of perfect markets, something that cannot and has not ever existed, just like that phantom fucking spirit in the goddamn sky. Then there is the groupthink aspect of this orthodoxy. In many ways, the Chicago school came to resemble a religious enclave where no one dared question the high priest of free markets. His disciple would argue on the margins and take issue with certain mathematical aspects of equations and possible outcomes, but on the whole, they bought into the doctrine. In this way, he stands in stark contrast to the likes of Keynes, whose circle of influence was entirely secular. The Bloomsbury group grounded Maynard. At the slightest hint of imperialist or colonialist tendencies, they would attack him with vigor and remind him that his place in history was to improve the lot of humans and contribute to a collective understanding of welfare, intellectualism, love, art, and romance. These were the goals that he was to aspire to. The markets were a means to this end for Keynes. To Friedman, markets were both the means and the end. As the architect of agreements and policies that settled two world wars and the Great Depression, whether they were fully adopted or not, Keynes was influenced by what he knew to be true, that absent guardrails in the form of regulations and government intervention, the worst of us would inevitably overwhelm the best of us. His was an economics of human nature. His was an economics of welfare, of kindness. And his seminal work was aptly titled in that it has allowed for change. It was a general theory not a specific remedy that would work in all cases. Friedman believed the government was built on a tyrannical bureaucracy. 
that the tyranny of big government would stifle the free expression of the pure markets. In this, he was less of an economist and more of a theologist who interpreted the device of an invisible hand as some sort of deity that would produce a just result. But his dogma ignores the true tyranny that underlies the reality of the world that we live in, not the world that he hoped would exist. The real tyrannical force that must be subdued and controlled is the tyranny of man that, left to its own devices, will endeavor to control the mechanisms of the market by virtue of greed. Today we live with the tyranny of information, controlled by a precious few who would manipulate the masses into believing that somehow, an invisible force of a phantom fucking market could somehow hold the best interests of humankind in its non-existent heart. It's not possible. The markets, to the extent that they exist in freedom, are indeed heartless. Blind to the externalities that the purists discarded as abnormalities and aberrations, the pollution, the carnage of war, climate change, racism, all of it. And above all, the one driving force that is intrinsic to our nature as a species. Greed. Fuck Milton Friedman. Here endeth the lesson. Exhausted yet? I sure am, but not too exhausted to run through a healthy list of thank yous to unfuckers who have stepped up their game to offer a surprising and humbling amount of support for our little thing here. Before we do that, we're going to do a little book love because if you're still into the flow of the show, I want to make sure that we get some of the stuff out. I'm not going to go into too much detail because it'll all be linked in the show notes. The first book is People, Power, and Profits, The Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent by Joseph Stiglitz. Next up, we have The Economist's Hour. I really like this one a whole bunch. It's uh, by Benjamin Applebaum. Uh, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. Then, of course, we have The Chicago School by Johann von Overfeldt. How the University of Chicago assembled the thinkers who revolutionized economics and business. And finally, once again, The Price of Peace. Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. Zachary D. Carter, author. These were the primary books that we dipped into in addition to uh, Capital by Thomas Piketty. You can find links to all of that in the show notes. As far as Podlove goes, Economic Update by Richard Wolf. You have to subscribe to get the full archive, but you, if you stay up with the new releases, you can get that uh, through almost any platform, I believe. Another one I've been checking out a lot lately is uh, Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. I don't listen to every single episode, but I think it's pretty great. I do listen to everything that Rick Wolf puts out. Uh, and for fun, there's uh, there's one called the David McWilliams Podcast. He's an Irish dude that covers a whole bunch of trending items over in the UK. There's He does a lot about Brexit there. It's a pretty funny show. They're just smart and, and cool and awesome, and they have great accents. So uh, David McWilliams Podcast is pretty awesome, too. That's it for Pod Love and Book Love this week. A little housekeeping, as some of you know, our new website is live at unftr.com. It's got more information about the show, links to Substack and bookshop.org, where we keep this impressive library of books for unfuckers to check out. UNFTR.com is now also the home of our coffee store, where we are selling organic fair trade coffee roasted especially for unfucking the Republic by native roasters of the Unkachog people in Puspatuck, a reservation here in New York. 
Now, we were pretty overwhelmed by the initial response of pre-orders, as the first 50 orders received a free Unfucking the Republic t-shirt with the phrase, Fuck Milton Friedman, printed on the back. So we went ahead and uh, added the shirt for sale in the store alongside our three initial blends of coffee, Unfuck Your Morning, Unfuck Your Afternoon, and a decaffeinated Unfucking. The coffee orders, by the way, didn't stop several of you from sending straight donations to the show. And before we get into the shout-outs here, I have to get a little personal to try and express to you how utterly grateful we are for the massive show of support. As I said in the beginning, this isn't my first rodeo. And while I shall retain my anonymity to ensure that the content always takes precedence over any personality associated with it, I've been in and around politics and journalism for uh, a long time. Unfuckers and subfuckers have made this more than a labor of love. Your support and thoughtfulness have turned this into something that we all now own. Your donations funded our ability to forge this coffee partnership, which will in turn provide us with an even greater ability to keep turning out high-quality content, but will actually have a demonstrable impact also on the native roasting operation. It's totally surreal, and I have all of you to thank for your generosity. And I have to say it again, the one thing that has impressed me the most is just how fucking smart and funny you guys are. So with that, here we go. Mike R. bought five coffees and suggested a show on vaccine conspiracies. I think we know where and how to work that in, Mike, though we do try to stay in our lane as much as possible, but we'll let you know about that. He also said FMF, FRR, and FLP. So, Mike, I get fuck Milton Friedman, fuck Ronald Reagan. My question for you is, is FLP free Leonard Peltier? Email us at unftrpod at gmail.com. Crin... Did it again. Crin's a fast friend and someone I owe a much longer response to in email. Crin, I was totally buried in this episode, but hopefully by the time you hear this, I've already emailed you back. Starlotti, my love, the raging introvert, came through with another five coffees and said that she'll visit Cuba as soon as she chews off these restraints. Vas bien, Maximo? Good Lord, I love you, unfuckers. Edric donated five coffees as a friend of David Pakman and said that they've learned more in 25 episodes than in 41 years since that fucker Ronald Reagan took office. Jenny W. bought five coffees and said she loves her fucking show. Barbie. <laughs> Barbie. Barbie bought us a coffee and said we truly make her lol. James C. bought three coffees and having just returned from Cuba said we were spot on. And to rock on, Teen Idol. Queena bought three coffees, Dieter bought five, and Amy thanked Best of the Left for introducing her to UNFTR. Amy is also a decaf drinker. Aaron C. bought ten coffees and wins the prize so far for the filthiest comment, saying, quote, I could swim in this uncum. That is perhaps the grossest statement I've ever typed, and you're welcome. End quote. Oh my god, Aaron, you fucking win. Trikushian bought three coffees and said our message about meeting people where they are is, quote, helping rebuild my relationship with my brother, end quote. As much as Aaron's uncum made me laugh out loud, this kind of made me tear up a bit. So thank you for saying that. Matthew K. bought 10 coffees and wishes he could start over and listen to them all again. Matthew, this is how I feel about Miami Vice, the series, not the movie. Jim Pressler came by way of Best of the Left and bought five coffees, saying he spent Memorial Day weekend listening to episodes. My new buddy Derek R., who swapped Cuba stories with me, said the next Cohiba is on him. But because he bought another five fucking coffees, no, Derek, it's on me. Charlotte 2778 bought three coffees and said the Cuba episode is similar to their experience in Haiti. Now, Charlotte 2778, I will tell you that down the road we have Haiti built into a larger episode, so stay tuned. Sturdebird bought a whopping 10 and just created a new UNFTR pledge. You ready, unfuckers? This is pretty awesome. 
I, Sturdebird, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend unfucking the Republic against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear truth, faith, and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of an unfucking the Republic supporter of which I am about to enter, so help me help you continue to do some unfucking. And of course, in unison, fuck Milton Friedman. Wow. I am honored that you put the time into creating a pledge for the show. I'm going to tighten that up a little bit and I'm going to put it out there for everybody to take along with you. Now, one Ben England bought five coffees saying FMF twice and pitchforks are coming. GM Haint bought three and called us righteous. Kevin Meyerson bought 10 fucking coffees and said he tried to order the actual coffee, but he's in Japan and we don't ship their shit. Well, thank you for donating, Kevin. Uh, I'm sorry that uh, we're only in the U.S. for now, but wow, Japan. <laughs> fucking A. I saved the last two because they're repeat unfuckers and the most fun to say. They both bought 10 coffees. They've both supported us before. They're both multi-platform unfuckers, so the final coffee thank yous go out to my unfucking friends... Peace, Libere, and Embustama. On Facebook, Tyler M. came from David Pakman and sent a suggestion for a show on unions that we are absolutely going to do. Yes to all of it, Tyler. Great job. CJF gave a thumbs up and a comment on our Cuba episode. CJL joined us from the Great White North asking when we're taking on their douche nozzle. We are taking on Jay Handsome soon enough, CJ. And Gary F. took his hat off to us. At ease, Gary, and thank you. On the tweeters, Midwest Monster sent out our bookshop list and demanded people read from it. Willie 3215 pointed out that we missed Roger Stone in our Assange episode. Willie, we've been buried, but promised to come back to you on that one. It's a great catch. Clear omission on my part, and we will want to talk about that. And uh, Dick de Tortle. <laughs> Dick de Tort. Ottle. I'll just say Dick to Tortle. Oh yeah, and Dictator Tottle, <laughs> or Dick to Tortle, tweeted "fuck Milton Friedman" at somebody, uh, and we just happened to find it, and we laughed. So thank you for that, Dick to Tortle, Tater Totter, Tater Totter, whatever. On Insta, Keylander Five said, "Coffee already ordered, and can't wait to unfuck my morning." Hope Whitestone said, "I've been dying for this coffee," and Schaefer Wafer Twenty said, "When I become president, I will create a national FMF holiday." God bless you, and. Godspeed, Schaefer Wafer. Daryl on Podbean asked about a connection between mass incarceration and gangster rap. I'm going to turn that one over to our engineer, Manny Faces, who also happens to be a hip-hop journalist and a lecturer. Manny, maybe you can pull Daryl into your social universe to dialogue a little bit. We received a bunch of emails, and those will hit privately, so if you haven't heard from us yet, hopefully you will shortly. Thank you to Diana, Mike, and Rob McDee from Ireland for engaging on Substack. And thank you to Trenton's Review, Bisco Boop Bazaar 42, Raul 0274, Rick Blau, Randy Jacks, Snafu 2325, and Gremlin Z42 for the five-star reviews. These reviews are so fucking important, so keep them coming on, fuckers. Last note. Almost every single interaction either ended with the phrase fuck Milton Friedman or hashtag FMF. So now that our official FMF episode has come to a close, I sincerely hope we did justice to the hashtag and explained just how impactful this man was. Unfuckers, thanks for everything and keep on unfucking. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. 
still listening. Uh, uh, fuck Milton Friedman. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Immodest Max and distributed by people who care about this world. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at Gmail. Check out our website at UNFTR.com. Find us on social or sign up for our essays for free at UNFTR.substack.com.